Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 26 this morning. I'll explain kind of where we are and why uh, here in just a moment. But um, I wanted to, to start out by referencing a, a style of a meme that I think most of you will be familiar with the last couple years. If you're on social media at all, you've probably seen this genre develop uh, where there, people will post two pictures side by side, and on the first one they'll have a label over it that says, how it started, and then the second one will say, how it's going. Do some of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, there, there's become this style of memes where uh, people will post these pictures, and it, it may have, to, sometimes they're trying to be very serious and weighty, and sometimes they're just trying to be humorous and kind of trite, uh, but they, it may be about their relationship, like how a picture of when they first met, and then now it's like their wedding day or something, and they're saying, this is how it started, now this is how it's going. Or I've seen it with athletes, like this is how I was when I was a little kid, just learning to, to shoot a basketball. This is now me at whatever level that I'm at. I've seen it with work, I've seen it uh, with all sorts of things. But the basic gist is that usually they're two different pictures, right? Often they're very different pictures. Uh, that I've seen one, uh, we have a meme master in the church. I will not reveal who this is, but they even sent me some this morning. You could even imagine Bible characters that are like this, where the guy who's speaking here in Deuteronomy, Moses, you could imagine a, if there was a post of him, how it started, how it's going, you could imagine him being laid in the basket by his mom uh, when he's an infant under threat of his life. That could be how it started. And then imagine him saying how it's going when he's like got the staff at the Red Sea and the, the waters are parting. That would be an example of kind of this genre, how it started, how it's going. But they're usually two different pictures. Uh, but the reason I mention that and why we're gonna, what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 26 today is that when we think about the life of following God, what it means to follow him as Lord uh, and to live our life for him, I would suggest to you that in a very real sense, how it started and how it's going should always be the same picture. That, that there's not a fundamentally different way that we start and then a whole different way that we continue. That the same way we start in our following after the Lord is how we continue till the day that we die and even into eternity. How we start is how we continue. How we uh, begin uh, is how we persevere. And I, we're going to see that in Deuteronomy 26 with the people of Israel. And I think we'll see that even in our own life as believers today. That how we we, how we begin is how we continue. So uh, as we come to Deuteronomy 26, I want to make a couple of preemptive uh, thoughts and explanation of uh, how we're going to read this and why. But we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy for several months now. We're, we've been mostly going a chapter at a time, and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to go through chapter 26. But it is important as we come to this text or any text of Scripture, whether we're preaching it or just reading it ourselves in private or reading it with a group of people, studying it, it's always important to try to understand the context of this passage. It's not just dropped out of thin air from, from heaven to us. It's in the context of a book. It's in the context of a bigger work of many books. And so it's always important to know the context that it's being written in. And typically what we do, if you've been around our church much, you'll know this is how we typically approach a text is we'll take a given text like we've been doing a chapter at a time 
recently. And we'll look at that text and we'll try to see what are the individual parts of it. Like what are the sentences, the paragraphs, the, the statements that are within this. And we'll try to, to understand how those all fit together as a unit. Like what this author was trying to say, what Moses was trying to say. Uh, we're taking the parts and explaining then the whole. Like what, what it means as a unit. But uh, what we're going to do today is a little bit different. Uh, I think it's equally valid when we come to a text like this is to think of that whole unit, that whole section, as a part itself of a bigger whole. That, that, that It's not just that we need to break down the individual components within this, but that we see how this fits within the bigger whole. That it's part of a bigger book. It's part of a bigger work. And that's going to be more what we do today. I was trying to think of an analogy. I liked science class when I was a kid and when we were learning about the cell, like a cell of a human body, for example. There's two ways you could look at a cell, right? You could, if you're able to see the cell under a microscope or on a, a page of a book or something, you could look at that cell and then try to look even deeper in it at the parts that make it up, right? Like, I don't even remember what they are, the, the nucleus and mitochondria and whatever else is in there and see how do these all work together for this cell to function. That's one way, valid way to look at it. But an equally valid way is to say, okay, here's a cell. How does that cell work within this tissue or within this system, right? That's an equally important thing to see is like, what is this thing doing in the bigger realm, in the, the bigger uh, the parts of the body? And so we're going to do more of the latter today. We're still going to get into Deuteronomy 26, some of the details of it. But we're also going to try to see how does Deuteronomy 26 fit into Deuteronomy, the whole thing as well. And so... Uh, Deuteronomy 26, one last thing before, uh, so you know context of how it fits in the whole before I read this. If you've not been with us, we've tried to note several times as we've gone throughout the book of Deuteronomy that Deuteronomy was written like an ancient treaty. Uh, there was treaties that would be written back in the ancient world in this area between a ruler and sub-rulers. Like there would be a ruler, a king, or someone who had possession of land, and there would be rulers underneath them who were given opportunity to, to rule in their smaller domains. And they would come up with these treaties, these agreements between that ruler and these sub-rulers. And they had certain ways those treaties would normally be written out and expressed. We've gone through some of these in Deuteronomy. There was like the historical prologue, it's called at the beginning, of what's the backstory to how God is related to Israel. We looked at some of that. Then the next section in those treaties is typically this part that people call the general rules or the general stipulations. And we read through that. That was where we read through the Ten Commandments, these kind of high altitude rules, expectations that God has for his people. Then the section we've been doing for months now, starting in chapter 12 all the way, and it's going to end today, chapter 26, is this part called specific stipulations, specific rules, where God has given some very specific situations and hypotheticals and saying when this happens or when this happens or when this happens, do this, do this, do this. It's getting more into the ground level. And it's been going from chapter 12 all the way here to chapter 26. And this, what we're going to read today, is the very end of that, the, that section of these specific stipulations. And then next week, uh, as we get into chapter 27, we're going to see some different parts of that covenant document, that, that treaty between God and his people. What we're going to read about today is two offerings that God is going to tell them as Israelites to bring to the priests, to bring to God. And what I would note, Last thing, I keep saying last thing before I read this. This really is the last thing before I read this. It's hard, these ancient texts, man, there's a lot of context to them, right? Uh, the last thing I want you to know, thinking of how does Deuteronomy 26 fit into Deuteronomy, the whole thing. 
these two offerings that he's about to mention and give directions about, he's actually already talked about. Like if you've been here the last several months, he's going to talk about this feast of weeks in today's section. He already gave address about that back in what we call chapter 16. Uh, And then the the second thing he's going to talk about today are these tithes that they were supposed to do every three years. He's already talked about that back in chapter 14. So he's already addressed these things, but we're going to see he addresses them again. Uh, And so I want to read this to you, and then I want to walk back and see why is Moses saying this again? Like, why is he giving directions about these offerings again? And so uh, let's read now, at long last, Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 19. As Moses speaks to the nation of Israel, he's about to die. They're about to go into the promised land. This is the end of that section of specific stipulations. And it begins like this, Deuteronomy chapter 26. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid laid on us hard labor, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, And bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession 
as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. This is the word of the Lord. I want to show from this text today uh, what I already mentioned at the beginning, that we continue following the Lord the same way that we began following the Lord. Uh, that, that we continue following him the same way that we began following him. And I want to walk back through this text and show that to you for these people in the nation of Israel and then see how it is also true of us. So in, in thinking of how we begin following the Lord, what are those initial steps, those initial acts that we do in obedience to the Lord? I, I want to show you briefly what these offerings were, uh, why Moses is, is commanding them, recommanding them, uh, and then think about why is he saying them again? What, what's the point of him saying these a second time to this nation of Israel? So real briefly, what these offerings were, because he's telling them to make them, to present them. The first one you saw in verses 1 through 11, as I, as I was reading through that, verses 1 through 11, Moses is describing, giving these commands to the people of Israel about what had earlier been called the Feast of Weeks, uh, that had been referenced back in chapter 6, and what that was, what he was calling them to do again was this, that after they had begun the harvest, you can look back at the details of this back even in chapter 16, after they had started the harvest each year, they're supposed to count seven weeks later. And at that seven-week mark, what they were to do, it's kind of fleshed out here in verse 2, is they're to take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground that they harvest from the land that God's giving them, so they're to take some of the first things that they've gathered up, and then they were to take them to the place that the Lord will choose. That ultimately became Jerusalem. It became the place where the, the tabernacle would rest and then the temple would be built. But they were to take some of those first fruits of the ground, the, the first of their harvest, and take them to this place and present them before the Lord. And it was to be like verses 10 and 11 here help us see that this was to be an act of worship an act of rejoicing, not just something out of obligation that they did, but verse 10, uh, he says, you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, right? And in, in verse 11, he even commands, like he did earlier, you shall rejoice in the good that God is giving you. So they were supposed to take the first fruits of their crops and bring some of them to the Lord to present as an offering out of thankfulness and the second offering that is mentioned is in verses 12 through 15. And this is what has come to be known. Some people call it the triennial tithe. That's not a word we use often. It means like every three years, uh, triennial tithe. Uh, he starts in verse 12 talking about when you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing. So what Moses is recommanding them here is what he already had talked about back in chapter 14 about tithes that were supposed to take place on a three-year cycle. And what they were supposed to do was to take a tenth of what God had given to them and they were to give it to certain people 
more locally, not to just take it to Jerusalem, like to the headquarters or the capital or the place where the temple and tabernacle were, uh, but they were to give them to people in their towns, right? Uh, That's stated explicitly in verse 12. He says that you've been giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow so that they may eat within your towns and be filled right? So there was, like, they were supposed to, on these three-year cycles, be regularly giving of what God had given them to people who were in need, to Levites, who were priests, who didn't have their own land to grow stuff, and to, to widows, who didn't have a husband any longer, who could, could care for them in that society and provide for them, to fatherless, who had no uh, father to provide, uh, to the sojourner, who may have moved in from a foreign nation, and has no natural ability to make inroads. They were to give from what God had given them to these categories of people, And these were to be done out of joy and thankfulness, not out of obligation, right? Like even in verse 16, he talks about everything that we're doing, even these givings of first fruits and tithes were to be done with our heart, with all our heart, with all our soul. They were to be deeply motivated, not just things we have to do. We cross off the box, well, I guess it's time to go to Jerusalem and take our stuff that we have to go give, or I guess it's time to give the tithe that these people need. I guess I'll go do it. It was to be done with the whole heart, with the whole soul. So those are the, the offerings that he is recommanding them in, the, in chapter 26, but he's already mentioned them. So why? Like, why does he do it again? He, he doesn't do that often in Deuteronomy of repeating a law that he's already stated in Deuteronomy, but he does it here, and the question is why. I would suggest to you, and I, I would base this mostly on verse 1 of today's text, I think Moses is doing this, is recommanding these things again that he would have just said a little bit ago. He's recommanding them because he's giving them directions about the very first time that they do it. Like the first first, right? The first first fruits. Uh, and I, the reason I would say that is because he says, he starts this whole chapter, he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall do these things. You shall bring this offering uh, to the, the central temple. You shall give these offerings uh, of tithe to the people around you. And I think he is talking first and foremost about these initial expressions of these offerings these very first times they bring these, that they make these, because this would have been uncharted territory for them to do this, right? They had already been able, even in their wandering in the wilderness, they'd already been able to celebrate certain things, like the Passover, right? They could celebrate that in their tents. They could celebrate that uh, with their animals that they already had, but they had no land yet to this point, right? They had no ability to actually plant things and grow things and take things from their own property to actually eat or to actually give to people. That would have been yet yet to be experienced for them, right? It's still laid off out in the future. And Moses is preparing them, I think, in this chapter for those very first expressions of it, those very first times that when they're finally in the land of Canaan. Because first in all of life, are special, right? They're memorable. They're, they're monumental a lot of times in our life the first time we experience them. Even though there may be an expectation it'll happen again and again and again, there's something unique and special, significant about the first time. And I want you to imagine being an Israelite here, hearing Moses give these commands, and he's saying it again the second time, like, 
you all need to bring the first fruits uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, they wouldn't have known necessarily what Jerusalem was yet, but to the place that the Lord will choose. Like you're going to actually have fruit and grapes and uh, grains and things to actually take with you. Like you're actually going to be able to do that. And you're actually going to have things that God provides to you that you can share with people who are going to be in your towns. This would have been so motivating to them to anticipate Sometime soon, we are going to get to do these things. We've been celebrating the Passover. We've been doing that. But we're about to get to do this. Like, we're about to get to give of these offerings. These people were still, to this day, as these words would have come into their ears, they're still eating manna, right? Only getting what they can have that day. And not even enough to share with anybody. And just for what they needed, that would have been their normal mode of operation. But Moses is like reminding them, you're about to get the chance to live somewhere and grow things and, and take of that land and be generous with it. And he's preparing them for that first expression of it. And how he does it is fascinating to me. The way he prepares them, if my understanding is correct, to make these initial offerings to the Lord is he gives them what I would call two liturgies. Two scripts to follow, two like things that they're supposed to say when they bring these offerings, when they either give of their tithes uh, to the people in their town or when they give of uh, the first fruits to the priests. Uh, he gives them these liturgies, like these scripts that they're supposed to say to make sure that their hearts are thankful, to make sure that their hearts are oriented the right way. And so Moses, if you've been through Deuteronomy with us, you have seen again and again and again and again, Moses has been telling them to remember what God has done for them, right? The word remember appears over and over. Remember, 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 remember. But I appreciate this text because Moses, I think, does not want to assume that they will remember, right? He doesn't just want it to be in their mind and maybe fall into the background. He wants it to come in their ears when they're about to make this offering and come out their mouth when they're about to give these offerings. He wants it to be ever before them that God has saved us. God rescued us. Everything we have is because God provided it for us. He wants this to be explicit. Like he wants it to be on their tongues. He wants them to say it. He wants them to hear it, not just to be a faint memory. And the, he gave them these two liturgies, right? Verses 1 through 11 have this first liturgy uh, where when they're offering at this feast of weeks, this first fruits offering, he gives them this script where in that first script, they're reciting, I would frame it this way, what God has done for them. The way that he has rescued them, the way that he has spared them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and then in the second uh, liturgy, the second script that he gives them starting in verse 12, he has them recite in response what they have done for God, the ways that they have sought to respond to him. Uh, so the first liturgy is about what God has done for them. The second one is about what they have sought to do in response to God. And I so appreciate these liturgies on all sorts of levels. Uh, but in that first one, that as they're bringing that first fruits offering to God, I appreciate that he has them recite this story, right? Starting in verse 5, he says, You shall make response before the Lord your God 
And then it's like they're telling a story. They're, they're reminding uh, themselves, even as they offer this, of the story of their people, that a wandering Aramean, that would have been Jacob, uh, who became known as Israel later, uh, was my father. And he went down into Egypt, right? You can read about that at the, in Genesis. And then the story continues into Exodus. And he sojourned there. And he, he becomes a great nation. But there's this harsh uh, slavery. And he talks about how God saw them and heard them and brought rescue to them, uh, delivered them. And now they're anticipating being the land reciting and now God's given us this land to live in they're reciting what God has done for them as a nation how he's seen them and how he's delivered them how he's saved them that second one is more them saying what they have sought to do in response them saying even as they've sought to give these tithes that they have have avoided these temptations they've not removed a sacred portion they've not uh, failed to give it to the Levites and to all those who are in need they've given it according to his command They've not forgotten, they've not eaten of it while they were mourning, all these things. They're saying, we have sought to do this in response. We've sought to do this uh, out of thankfulness, out of obedience to what you've commanded us and gratitude for what you've done for us. So he gives them these scripts that are supposed to be read, they're supposed to be recited even, maybe memorized and stated as they bring these first, first fruits, as they bring these first tithes. He gives them these liturgies. The question I want to think about in this first section of how we begin, though, is how do we begin? Like, he's giving them instructions of, okay, now you're in the land. How do you start living there? What are these first things that you do? But a natural question, a fitting one for us to ask is, how do we begin following the Lord? What are the initial responses that God calls forth from us? Because just as these Israelites, this new generation, was called to make an initial response to God, an initial commitment, expressions of thankfulness, so too are we. Like God calls us as every human being, if we are to be saved, if we are to be united with him, there is an initial expression, initial experience that happens within us, initial thing called forth from us by God. And as we think about our response to God, how we begin these folks looked back at events that were in the past to them. They looked back to Jacob, right, that wandering Aramean. They looked back to the Exodus, right, when God did this Passover and he brought judgment upon the Egyptians and he parted the Red Sea and he, he rescued them miraculously. That's what they were looking back at and thanking God for. What we are called, as we initially come to the Lord, what we are called to look back at is something way better than that. And what we look back at is the cross of Jesus Christ. We, because that is where salvation was gained for us. Uh, that is where deliverance was given to us. Because at the cross of Christ, Christ suffered in our place. Our sin was laid upon him. And he was judged. He was condemned. He suffered and died at the hand of God the Father himself in our place. Dealing with the full weight, the full penalty of our sin. Bearing it so that we might be forgiven. So it might be removed from us. So we might be pardoned from it. We get to look back at that rescue that was achieved for us at the cross once and for all. And the way we respond to that isn't just by reciting some script, but by placing our trust in him, by, by placing our faith and expressing now to God that my hope is solely in what Christ has done for me at the cross. I, I turn from my sin. There's two phrases we use to summarize a lot and that the scriptures use to summarize our initial response to God to be united with him is repentance and faith. That's what God calls forth from us initially is that we repent of our sin, that we 
own it, that we express contrition and ask for forgiveness for our sin, knowing the, the ugliness of it. We repent, but then we have faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who was crucified in our place and raised from the dead. And we say, God, I am sorry for my sin. On the merits of Jesus, please forgive me. Like I trust in him that his work is sufficient. Repentance and faith. That is what we express to God as the starting point of Christian life. And that is what I would call forth from any and all of you who are in the room today, if you have never done that before. Uh, that what, the way you begin relationship with God the Father is not just by you concocting your own script, your own decision, your own thing that you think gets you to God, but it's by doing what he has told you to do, to repent of your sins and place your trust in his son Jesus who is crucified for you and raised for you. And if we do that, when we do that, we are joined with his son. We are, are reconciled to him once and for all. We're forgiven of our sin. We're, we're granted the hope of eternal life. We're called sons and daughters of God when we were enemies. But that is how it begins, is that we turn from our sin. We place our trust in Christ. I've so appreciated in the spirit of this text having liturgies and scripts. I know there's been mixed feelings about this, but even when we baptize people uh, the last couple years, you've probably noticed if you've been part of our church, we've actually developed a script that we ask people as they're about to be baptized, uh, where we ask them three questions as they're making this initial proclamation of faith. We ask them these three questions. We say, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? That's question one. Uh, we ask them, secondly, do you forsake yourself, your sin, and Satan? That's question number two. And the third question we ask in our script is, do you intend with God's help to obey Jesus' teaching and follow him as your Lord? We have asked those to many people the last few years who've been baptized. We will continue, Lord willing, to ask many more, maybe even some of you as you come to faith, those very questions because we all begin the Christian life the same way, by, by turning from our sin, resting our soul on Jesus. And I, I so appreciate that we have embedded this script, this liturgy, even in how we baptize people to say we all come in to faith the same. We all come in on the same ground, the same merits, the work of Jesus one other thing before I jump to how we continue in the faith and what we see in this text, just on a very practical note, this in thinking of how we begin the Christian faith, and this is something I want to grow in, maybe you all can help me with this too, is as we share the good news of Jesus with people, I think it is very important that we tr call them to a response. Right? I think oftentimes what I can be tempted to is just to proclaim the good news, to, to tell people, man, we are sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner, friend. But Christ has sent a Savior who has suffered for us on the cross, who's borne the wrath of God, uh, and who was laid in a tomb, but who's been raised from the dead and offers forgiveness to us. Like, and, and to proclaim that, and then just sometimes I can even justify this theologically because I know, based on the scriptures, that God is the one that changes their heart. I can justify just being passive and just saying, well, God will work with them. God will do what he needs to do. I don't need to actually like call them friend. Like Jesus also told us to repent and believe. And that is how you become joined. That is how, how you are saved is by, by this expression of faith 
in Christ, by being united with him. And I think it is vital that we include that step. That is not the good news, but it is calling for the response to the good news is essential for us to tell people what to do with that good news. It's like at Pentecost when Peter tells them about this crucified Jesus who's been raised now. Their response is, they say, what shall we do, right? And he tells them, he says, repent and be baptized. And we need to be active in doing that as well, actually calling for people to be converted, to actually put a stake in the ground and say, I am turning from my sin and I'm trusting in this Christ that you've told me about. It is vital that we do that. Second half of today's text, how we continue in the faith. And I've said it's how, it's the same way we begin but I grew up in a church that, and it, I love my church growing up. I am thankful to God for it, for the people that are in it. I think it had almost an unhealthy emphasis on the initial step of faith, of like every Sunday we would have altar calls. We would have uh, a pastor stand up front, which I so appreciate saying, we need to repent. We need to believe in Jesus Christ. If you want to do that, come forward. You can be, we'll pray with you. You can receive the gift of salvation. That would be every Sunday, drumbeat, drumbeat, drumbeat. I'm so thankful for that, that we called people to repent. We called people to believe. But what I, at least, I don't think this was expressly taught, but what I grew up thinking then was that after that happens, like, you're good to go. Like, you, you're, you're in, you've been dealt with uh, at the cross. The, and then I would think of Christian living as somehow fundamentally different from that. Like, there's this initial act you do. You, you turn from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, but now is the obedience part. And you just totally d- live on different terms, and you almost don't even think about repentance and faith. You almost don't even think about the cross. You, know, you just think of obedience and diligence and, and this, this almost like cold, calculated obedience. And I had thought that I had gotten in one way, but now I lived a different way. There's different things I was called to do, different things I was tapped into. But how we start in the faith is how we continue in the faith. And I think you see that even in today's text, and you certainly see it in that broader scripture, right? Moses was giving them commands here about these initial expressions of of faith and obedience as they went into the promised land. But he was also, by nature of what he had said those previous chapters and even here in 26, he's not just telling them to do this the one time, right? And then just, that's it. Like you just recited this one time uh, and then it can just pass on into oblivion. He wanted them to keep saying this right? Every year when they would bring that first fruit offering, every third year when those tithes would be completed, he wanted them to keep saying it, right? He wanted them to pass these liturgies, pass these scripts down to the generations coming behind them. And I so appreciate this, that there was this initial command to do these offerings within this ongoing command, because how fickle are our hearts? I know how fickle mine can be at times, that sometimes especially like as a young Christian, I was zealous. I was thankful that those first expressions, I'm like, yes, like hallelujah, thank you God for Jesus and what he's done for me and my heart would overwhelm with this initial expression of faith. But then it would, it would grow cold, it would grow dull. And this happens in all realms of life, I think. Like if you buy a house, right, and you're thrilled about a house when you buy it, there's a reason you buy it, right? And that, that you're thrilled about this dimension of it and the size of it and the yard and whatever. And is it not that maybe five years in, ten years in, you're like, 
I can't stand this place. Like, I got, we got to get a new place. Like, the, th- the same thing that thrilled us in the beginning, just we are chilled about, right, as, as time goes on. Or in our relationships, the, I think often, because I get to officiate weddings, I think of the way a groom fawns over his bride on the wedding day and then yawns over her 20 years later, Right? Like, that is so common in so many realms of life that, that our hearts start excited. They start thankful. They start uh, filled with joy and gratitude, and then they just fizzle. Slowly, our thankfulness, our delight diminishes. But these liturgies, these scripts, weren't just supposed to be said once. They were supposed to be said again and again and again and again to remind people of this story, to remind people of what God had done for them and what they were called to do in response. And the, these liturgies weren't supposed to evolve over time. They, they weren't supposed to like shift with the next generation. He was trying to give this to them to say perpetually, to keep saying forever as the people of God. He's, in verse 17, he says, today you have declared that the Lord is your God. But he also says, so that's a, a present thing. You're declaring it today. But in, he also continues and says, you're declaring that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes. There's a, a future dimension to it as well. It's not just you make this initial commitment to the Lord, but there's future faith, future obedience that is called for as well. And so they, the people of Israel, the people of God even today, we don't need some fresh new story to motivate us towards thankfulness and godliness, do we? Like what we need when our hearts are cold, when our hearts wane in our love for God is not some fresh new thing. It is the old, old story of Jesus, right? And what he has done for us at the cross, what he is doing for us now, what he will do for us when he returns. That is what we need to restoke our hearts. It's the same story that was proclaimed at Pentecost, the same story that has been proclaimed now to us. That is what we need to tell ourselves, and that is what we need to tell each other when our hearts grow cold. So that is how we continue. I remember when I was in seminary uh, reading through the scriptures, and I came across the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, uh, and I, we're going to have this up on the screen. I remember reading this text, and it was just like a breath of fresh air to me as someone who had grown up thinking, I'm converted one way. And again, I was not taught this, but I thought, I'm converted one way. I live a different way. Then I read this, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, and, and see if you can pick up on how there's this sameness with how you begin and how you continue. Paul wrote to this church and said, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. You don't need something new. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I could preach like for an hour on that. I will not. This is a sub point. But when I read that, it's like, yes. Like the way I began, the way I received Jesus, where I, I repented and I placed my trust in him, that's the same way I walk in him is I keep doing those same things. I I keep repenting. I keep trusting. That is what the Christian life is. The way we start repenting and believing is the same way we continue, repenting and believing, just as we were taught, not needing some new thing to 
fuel thankfulness in me, but returning to the old thing that I've already come to believe. That's what's going to fuel thankfulness. That's what's going to break my bonds to sin. That's what's going to give me a distaste for it. That's what's going to give me a motivation to live righteously is to remember what Christ has done for me in the same way I received him initially. That's how I continue in him ongoingly, repenting, believing, repenting, believing. They look back at the Passover, right? And they, they recount, even in this, this uh, last section of today's text, they're recounting how God has declared over them that they're his people, that they belong to him as a possession for them. They were looking back at the promises of God and looking back at the Exodus and, and hearing God's declaration of that over them. When we look back, we see the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus. And as we look at those, as we look there, we ought to, in a very real sense, be hearing God declare over us, you belong to me. Like you permanently, eternally are my people because of what Jesus has done for you. How can we not help ourselves but keep looking back there, keep going back to the cross, keep going back to the resurrection of Jesus? That is where we ought to look. That is what we ought to recite. That is what ought to be on our lips. And I appreciate that he gives them these liturgies, that he gives them these scripts that they're to say. If you're anything like me, I grew up thinking that repetition, reciting of things equated with dullness, right? With coldness, like, I'm not moved by this. I'll pledge allegiance to the flag at school and my heart doesn't care at all. I will say these things, I'll recite these things, these cold things that I'll just recite, 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 and it means nothing to me. And, and I would equate repetition with dullness. But I appreciate in a text like this that, that we can see the goodness and the sweetness of repetition, of, of going back again and again and again and again to the same things, to the same words, the same ideas, the same story. Uh, that is what is for our good. It's not dull. It's not lifeless. It's to, what is to breathe life into us is this repetition of the good news of Jesus. That is where life comes from. I, I appreciate it. There's a church in our denomination that likes to refer to themselves, and I, I love this phrase. They, it's kind of clunky, but I get what they're saying. They call themselves a same things church. And what they are trying to communicate with that is like, when we come together every Sunday, we're doing the same things. Like every single Sunday, every single week. Like we're not trying to like create some new experience for people that's like uh, something they've never thought about before and something they've never felt before. We are trying to do the same stuff every Sunday on purpose. Like that's what we're doing is we're reading the word of God together. We're singing songs that point us to Jesus together. We are praying together to our heavenly father. We're taking the, the, the bread and the cup together. We, we are doing these things together. We're hearing the word preached. We are doing the same things because we need the same things. Every single Sunday, we need the same things coming into our minds, coming into our ears, coming into our hearts. And so we seek to do that as a church on purpose. Like we seek, and you have probably picked up on this if you're part of our church long, we do a lot of the same things every Sunday. Like we always start reading scripture. We always sing songs that point us to Jesus. We always pray. We, we always read scripture. We have a brother or sister read scripture. We always end with a benediction. We always preach from the word of God. Everything we do, we're trying to do the same things, right? We have rhythms as a people of God that is for our good. 
We might be tempted to think of them as dull, but if they are embedding the story of Jesus in us, you better believe they are for our good. They are what is going to help restore what is broken in us. They are what's going to breathe life into us again and again and again. There is great value in saying once a month, Christ's body broken for us. Saying Christ's blood shed for us. There is great value in hearing a benediction spoken over us at the end of every Sunday. There is great value in hearing scriptures recited, singing the same songs again and again and again. That is for our good. We don't need novelty. Like we don't need difference. We need sameness. And God's people then needed it. We need it now. So there's a goodness and a sweetness of repetition. And we should have eyes to see that as such. I want to end by, by saying this. My heart couldn't help but lead me to, to say something about this as I read this text and think about these first firsts, these first first fruits, these first tithes. As I can't help but thinking about us as the people of God, for those who are united with Jesus, of thinking about the first firsts that await us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we are raised from the dead someday, and when that new earth is established, there is going to be a lot of first firsts, right? The first time after you have died and your body has been lifeless, the first time you eat again, right? Like the first time that you, I don't know what we're going to do in the new earth, but you put your hand to a plow or that you uh, enjoy a, a drink together. You, there's going to be first firsts that we get to enjoy in the new earth that were gained for us by Jesus. And if these people's hearts were motivated by thinking of the first feast of weeks, how can our hearts not be thrilled to think about the first time when we're raised from the dead to never die again? Like that I get to see and taste and hear and enjoy. That ought to, to thrill our hearts. And do you know what we are going to be doing for all eternity? Is we are going to be coming back to this same story. Right? Like we are going, and it will never, ever, ever get old. Like when John saw heaven opened up before him, what people were singing about and praising about that is the lamb who was slain. They weren't just looking around enjoying each other. They were talking about something that had already happened. They were talking about the event that had saved them. And a million years from now, whatever that looks like, wherever that is, I'm assuming Jesus, this side note, assuming Jesus has returned by then, uh, a million years from now, when we're raised from the dead, we are going to be talking about the cross of Jesus. And we're going to keep talking about it two million years from now. And it will never get old. It will make our hearts grow in thankfulness. And we're not going to be talking about a wandering Aramean who went down into Egypt and who God raised up out of Egypt. We are going to be talking about a Galilean named Jesus who went down into the grave. Right? And was raised from the grave, delivering us once and for all from sin and from Satan and from death. And that will never, ever, ever get old then, and may it never, ever get old now. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to sing. But let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we don't need to create new news, that we don't need to create a new message, a new story to thrill our hearts, to, to bring us to place of repentance and contrition, but that we have the story already, the true story of Jesus who entered into our world and lived for us, suffered for us, died for us, who was raised for us, who's interceding for us, who someday will return for us. God, forgive us for letting that story become dull and old. 
Uh, I pray that you would let it thrill our hearts, that, that you would let it melt hardness of heart that is within us, and that you would, by your spirit, give us joy and delight in hearing that story again and again and again and again because it helps us to see your goodness. It helps us to see your grace. It helps us to see your generosity, your kindness, your compassion toward us. So, Father, even as we sing now, we pray as we sing a song that many of us have sung before, that it's message of the generous king, you as generous king who has given to us out of kindness, that that would dissolve hardness of heart, that it would thrill our souls. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.